Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. I didn't introduce myself before, so let me do that now. My name is Drew. I'm also a pastor here at Redeemer. It's good to see so many of you. If you're at home, we're praying uh, for your health uh, as well, and uh, just glad we can be together in both formats this morning. We are beginning a new series. We're going to be looking at the prophet Isaiah from now really until the end of the year, although we'll have different sections that we're looking at at different times. So if you're unfamiliar with that Old Testament book, uh, maybe this will be a good uh, time for us together. And we start this morning in Isaiah chapter 5. It is really the chapter that explains the rest of the entire book. That's why we started there, but we'll also read from Isaiah 27 where the Lord picks up the same theme again in that later chapter. But here's the question as we read this morning. What is the ROI on God's grace to you? ROI, return on investment. What is the return on investment for God's grace to you in your life, for his goodness that's been running after you your whole life? And so consider that as we read these texts. Let's begin in Isaiah chapter 5 and then Isaiah 27. Hear God's word. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness Their blossom go up like dust, for they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Sobering words. Same metaphor, but notice how the tone changes as we come to Isaiah 27. Something's happened because he says, in that day, same vineyard, in that day, a pleasant vineyard. Sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it day and night. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle, I would march against them. I would burn them up together or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. For in the days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. This is the word of the Lord. The worthless vineyard that feeds the world. What is the ROI on God's grace to you? The text is dominated by this metaphor of a vineyard, and the owner of the vineyard was God, and the vineyard was his people, we're told there, the nation of Israel, verse 7, and by extension, you and me. And so here's what we're to ponder as we come to this text. God has been gracious to us. In Corinthians, Paul warns to not 
receive all of the goodness and the grace of God toward us in vain. Don't receive it in vain because God blesses, but he always blesses to make us a blessing. Every goodness that you are thinking about as we sing that song just a few minutes ago, every goodness that comes into our lives, every good thing that God does comes to us on its way to somebody else. He has taken great care with us to make us people that care for the world. And so here's, here's what we're going to see from this text. When we think about this vineyard, I want you to see these three things as we walk through. I want you to see the expected fruit, and then the rotten root, and then the coming shoot. And that is the greatest sermon outline of my career. It is all downhill from here. I might as well just retire, because that is awesome. At the preaching meeting, they said, Jeff Skipper helped you with that, didn't he? Because he is notorious for having the best outlines. And I said, no, I did it all by myself. <laughs> it's actually right here in the text. The expected fruit and the rotten root and the coming shoot. That'll preach. And so let's walk through it together. First, beginning with the expected fruit. Let's read again, verses 1 and 2. My beloved, the prophet is singing about the Lord. He says, my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it and planted. He built, he hewed out. And so forth, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. John's gospel begins with this wonderful description of life. He says, from God's fullness, we have received grace upon grace. From God's fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. God is full, and from that fullness, he overflows, and we receive. You know what that means? Every day is Christmas morning. Gift after gift Grace upon grace. God is a lover, the text says here. These are the verses of a love song. He loves, and in love, he cultivates our life. Planting us on fertile hills. Look there, digging and clearing and seeding so that our days might be filled with beauty, with wonderful things to delight in, and then watching over us and protecting us from harm. It's gift after gift and grace upon grace. But here's the thing, his grace does not exempt us from grief and losses. It actually encompasses the hard parts of life. And so in your deepest sorrow, that's why I love that song so much, because the first verse is all about the good stuff. The second verse is all about the tough stuff. And in your deepest sorrow, here's the truth. On the days of deepest darkness, in the times of deepest sorrow, you could and should still truthfully sing this love song of the one who has been so faithful to plant and water and seed and prepare for good things. You see, the very first thing is this, that we need to learn to re-narrate our lives in light of God's grace. Listen to the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians again. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? I dare you to find something. <laughs> and if you did not, and if you received it, he says, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Here's, there's not one single thing, not one single thing in your life that is not a gift. All the good you enjoy, all the bad you endure, all the ups, all the downs, all the twists, all the turns, all of it. Picture your life as a landscape. It has been dug and cleared out and planted and built by God, gift after gift, grace upon grace. And that is true for every single person in the room this morning. But it's especially true if you claim to believe and belong to God. All the world is his, the Bible says, but his people are his in a special way. He takes special care 
with his own because he's prepared a special purpose for them. And so throughout the Old Testament scriptures to this point, God is cultivating Israel like a vineyard. He rescued them from Egypt. He's planting them in the land. He's weeding out the other nations and the idolatries of those peoples from them. He's forgiving and pruning away their sins for his greater purposes in the world. And here's the question for us this morning. Can you, can you look back at however many years are in the rear view of your life? Can you look back at all of those years and see the way that he's been cultivating you? And he's done it all, not so that you could just live your life for yourself, but so that you live for him. See, grace by definition, I said the ROI on God's grace, the ROI on God's grace. Grace by definition is undeserved. That just means that God's love always begins with God, with himself and not with us. But grace does create an obligation for those who are found by it. And it's the obligation of love. It's the obligation of gratitude. So let's take off the table this morning at the beginning the poisonous idea that we live for God's heart and not from it. We don't live for it. We don't live trying to get God to smile upon us. We live from his smile. Take that poisonous idea off the table, but let's put on the table. This, that the right response to being loved by God is to love him and to love others in return. God's love does not begin with us, but it does not end with us either. The text clearly says that God expected their love and faithfulness and loyalty in return. He looked for the fruit of his grace to them, which would be grace in them. And so here's the thing I want to say is that grace, even though it's grace, grace obligates in a deeper way than even religion does. Because here's what grace, in grace, this is, this, is the, this is the message of grace. If it's grace, then that means you do nothing. And it means God does everything. But if that's true, if you do nothing, and if God does everything, and if that's the reason for all of the good and even all the bad in your life, then that means the only response to that reality, to you having done nothing and God having done everything, is that you'll do anything. John 15 Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So even Jesus expected fruit from his disciples, not as a reason for his love, but as the result of his love. And so we see that God expects fruit, but we're also told what fruit he expects. Now warning, this might surprise you, Okay. Look at verse 7, because he tells us very specifically there's something that's missing here among his people that he was looking for. It says, he looked for justice. You could circle that word. But behold, bloodshed. For righteousness. You probably should circle that word too. But behold, an outcry. Now, this is a very specific concern. Justice and righteousness are often paired in the prophets and even throughout the Old Testament scriptures because they go together, they're twin ideas. And righteousness here refers to a life of right relationships. It describes a person who, because they are rightly related to God, are committed to putting right all other relationships in life as well. And so we tend to think of righteousness as an individual reality. But biblically, it's both personal and also social. So the most important thing in life is to be right with God. That's the message of Christianity. That's the core message, is that you can be put right with God through Jesus Christ, right? That's our gospel. That, that's, our, that's our bread and butter. That's what we're here. That's what we talk about every week. But here's the thing. It doesn't end there. It, it refers to personal morality, but also to relationships with family and friends and community and, and even politics. And so righteousness is about right relationships, but justice is about right rules. 
right structures, right policies, and particularly care and advocacy for orphans and widows, immigrants and the poor, who are often the victims of broken relationships. And so justice is, righteousness is being rightly related to God and being committed to right relationships with other people. Justice is the structural and the political correction wherever there is a lack of righteousness in society or in a community. And God expected both to be true of his people and he expects both to be true of us as well. Tim Keller wrote about this in a book called Generous Justice and his thesis was this, he says, the better your grasp and experience of God's grace, the bigger your heart will be for justice. There is the gospel, we can be right with God through Jesus Christ, but then there's also the results of the gospel. There's what the gospel is and then there's what the gospel does. And both are important. Both are crucial. You can't have one and not the other. The gospel is the good news that we are made right with God through sheer grace because of Jesus Christ and him alone. But that good news aims you at others, especially the poor and the marginalized. And so the expected fruit is a life of faith and love, receiving grace and then being gracious. And that's Isaiah 1, we read it. Did, it. did you catch it? Just the breaking of God's heart when he says, you appear before me. But who is required? Listen to how he says it. Who is required of you this trampling of my courts, bring no more vain offerings? And why were they vain offerings? He says, because you're coming before me, you're doing all these things, but, but you're still, you're not learning to do good. You're not seeking justice. You're not correcting oppression. You're not bringing justice. He says, stop coming to church so much and go out in the world and start doing that stuff. Because he does not want people who are merely religious and do religious things. He wants change agents in the world. And that is the fruit. Rightly related to God through Jesus, then bringing that righteousness into the world and wherever it isn't, correcting it by doing justice. But second, second, we see not only the expected fruit, but the rotten root. Because we're told in verse 2 that he looked for it all of his grace and goodness to these people to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. That word means stinky grapes, rotten grapes. Don't you hate it when you go to Publix? Don't you hate it? I expect more Publix, I think, or something. But when you go to Publix and you get the grape, we, I don't, I don't know, our family likes like the really crunchy fir, like grapes that are really firm. And you go and you get them and they're squishy. You're like, I just wasted my money, right? These are rotten, squishy, stinky grapes. Later in the chapter, he says this, verse 24, their root will be as rottenness, their blossom go up like dust, for they've rejected the law of God and have despised his word. Israel had become merely religious. There was no real faith and no real love. And in verse 7, if you see where it says he looked for justice but found this, he looked for righteousness but found this, he looked for justice but behold bloodshed, righteousness behold outcry, there's a word play there that's interesting in the Hebrew. It says this, I mean, this is my best Hebrew um, pronunciation. It says, God looked for mishpat but found mishpah. He looked for tzedakah and found tzedakah. That's how literally it reads. And the assonance there is intentional. It's, it's something the author is doing here. It reminds that the wild grapes that were coming to fruition in these people at first glance looked good. They outwardly looked like the right thing, but they weren't. They were close but they weren't the right thing. Israel outwardly was very religious, but their convocations and their sacrifices had become a stench to God, smelly grapes, because it was mere ceremony. It didn't come from a root of gratitude. And it was not accompanied 
by acts of grace towards others. Now notice verse 3, the Lord says, So come, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do that I have not done? In other words, the problem here is not with God's caretaking. He had not failed in any way. Israel was the problem. There was disease in their roots. And you know, one of the things I think that means for us is when things are not going well, we are quick to cast blame and maybe even to accuse God. And I'm grateful for this reminder in that verse there, verse 3, that he is perfect in all of his ways towards us. He is blameless and true. He's unwaveringly faithful. He's never wrong. God is never the problem. Can I say that again? God is never the problem. So full stop on blaming God. Isaiah is directing these people and us along with them towards introspection and confession. What's the problem? It's not with the Lord. Verse 15, which we didn't print for you, Israel has become proud, and their pride was the rotten root. Now, this is the main theme of the early chapters in Isaiah's prophecy. It's here in verse 15. It's in chapter 2, verses 11 through 17, where there's this lengthy, the Lord takes them to the woodshed about their pride there in those verses. And pride, of course, is the greatest sin because it is the root sin. It is the anti-God state of being. And so the tenor and the mood and the taste and the smell of graceless religion, pride. And pride reveals itself. If the fruit is love for God and love for neighbor, if the fruit is faith and love, pride destroys both ways. Pride toward God, replacing true love and gratitude to the Lord, reveals itself in fierce autonomy. And that's one of the things you see here. Now note, if you have a Bible, you can see it more clearly. But in chapter 5, after verse 7, there are six woes. And structurally, of those six woes, the third and the fourth are the center of that. And so they're the main point of the whole section. And so that's why we chose to include them in the reading. And it says there in verses 20 and 21, Woe to those, this is the third woe, who calls evil good and good evil, who puts dark for light, light, darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And then the fourth woe, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Woe to those who live their truth. Who believe that truth is subjective and tailored to personal preference. Such a person in the Bible is a fool. They're out of touch with reality. Because there is a transcendent reality, a word, a law. And we're told here that they, these people have rejected it. They've despised it, attempting to redesign reality to satisfy their own desires. And so the truth of the scripture is so compelling to me because it is so contemporary. We've not grown past this in almost 3,000 years. In Genesis 3, the man and the woman were tempted by knowledge apart from God to grasp from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and so to know for themselves and to define for themselves those categories and so to become like God, to supplant him, deciding for themselves between good and evil, darkness and light, bitter and sweet. The prophets today, in our day, call it an aspiration. The prophets and the prophet Isaiah say it's a temptation and a ruin. And the result, we're told here, is moral vertigo. See, when evil and good and dark and light and bitter and sweet are all up for grabs, when they all become a matter of individual preference, then soon evil becomes good and good becomes evil. See what happens? And darkness becomes light and light 
is called darkness. And bitter is mistaken for sweet and sweet for bitter. C.S. Lewis said brilliantly that if nothing is opaque, if everything is transparent, the problem is that means we live in an invisible world. That's profound. Here's what he meant. If there is no objective standard for good and evil, then there is no such thing as good and evil. See, my truth and your truth can't both be true. That's the problem. And so this, what they're doing here, this is human rebellion and pride. And it's Isaiah's coming against it. But pride also ruins the fruit of love. You know, if it ruins the fruit of faith and love for God, it ruins the the fruit of love towards others too because it reveals itself horizontally in our lives, not just fierce autonomy, wanting to decide for ourselves, but then cruel injustice. So he says, verse 23, woe to those who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of their right. Earlier, which we didn't read, woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room. Now these are allusions uh, to those who have wealth and power and are using it to advantage themselves and disadvantage others. And so it's exactly, it's exactly as Voldemort said to Harry Potter in The Sorcerer's Stone. He said, do you remember the line? It's, it's this great, I mean, I love that it's a kid's movie because it's so profound. This is the essence of evil where at the very end of the first movie, he says, there is no good and evil, there's only power. There is no good and evil, there's only power in those too weak to seek it. And you see this too in our contemporary setting. This is why all of our political conversations seem to make their way back to power dynamics. And that is because when you remove the categories of good and evil, when you subjectify all of those things, then all that's left is power. And biblically, God's people are to use their power for the good of the community and not just to advantage themselves. A seminary professor of mine said it this way, it stuck with me over the years. He said, a righteous man disadvantages himself for the sake of the community. An unrighteous man advantages himself at the expense of the community. And these people are doing the second. Shusako Indo said this. He said, sin is for one man to walk brutally over the life of another and to be quite oblivious of the wounds these left behind. That's what these people are doing. We have to be careful not to be doing the same. Now, Isaiah's prophetic ministry was aimed right at Israel's pride and the fierce autonomy Right, and the cruel injustice, the wild grapes that were growing from the rotten root of pride in their life. And so verses 24 and then verses 25 begin both with the word therefore. So now God is coming here at the end of this chapter with the response. And here's what we read, verse 25. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them, and he struck them. Now this is the language of judgment. Echoing what Isaiah had already said earlier, he said this. In Isaiah 2, 11 through 17, you really should go back and read those verses, but he said this, For the Lord has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Isaiah says the Lord refuses to countenance our pride. Against these people, he would bring judgment. He would remove the hedges and break down the walls that had protected the vineyard, and it would become a waste. The image there you see, full of briars and thorns. So one commentator said that the main message of Isaiah, and we'll come back to this, is the inevitable conflict between human pride and God's glory. And there are really two options. You can, in light of who God is, you can humble yourself in repentance ahead of time, or... The second option is, is that if you fail to do that, then God will humble you in your life circumstances as he's doing to these people and ultimately 
at the final judgment because as we read the day the lord has a day against all that is proud and so here's the choice before us this morning even us and it's this if we do not acknowledge our pride and humble ourselves before god now then there's a day in the future when we will stand before him in judgment and we will on that day we will be brought low we will every one of us we will bow the knee you can do it now i'd advise you to You can do it now, or you can do it then. You can do it now, willingly, from love, or you will do it then. This is what the Bible says. This is what God has revealed to us. And so let me stop at this point and just make this, because we need to understand what's happening exactly here so we can understand this book. But Isaiah is writing to Judah here about Israel. Now, let me, I got to help you make sense of that. The nation, God's people had suffered a civil war and split into north and south. And so Israel is up in the north, the capital city of Samaria. It's 10 of the 12 tribes who've coalesced and, and formed the nation of Israel. Judah is, is Judah and Benjamin in the south, the capital city of Jerusalem. Now Israel, the people in the north, quickly apostatized. Their kings led them to embrace the gods of the other nations. And so in 722 BC, the Assyrians conquered them and sent them into exile. Now, Isaiah's ministry, we believe, dated between 740 and 700. So it's during the time when Israel, the nation in the north, is being carted off into exile. And Isaiah's in Jerusalem in the south. And he's speaking and he's writing to Judah about what happened to their, you know, their countrymen in the north saying, look and see what God did there. If you don't learn the same lesson, if you don't repent and humble yourself and do what they didn't do, then the same thing that happened to them is going to happen to you too. And guess what? They didn't listen. They didn't learn. And in 586, 140 years later, the Babylonians, not the Assyrians, because the Babylonians had ascended and and overcome the Assyrians, but the Babylonians came and conquered in Jerusalem, and Judah went into exile, and the city was burned, and the temple was destroyed. And here's what this means for us. Isaiah would say to us, do you see what happened to Israel? Judah didn't learn. Do you see what happened to Judah? Are you going to learn? That's what he's saying. What about you? Are you going to learn the lesson? Because you see the woes here, six woes. The woes are a funeral lament. He is declaring the death of the nation because they would not learn. They would not listen. They would not humble themselves and tremble at God's word. And friends, listen, the same can happen to us too. But here's the thing. Eugene Peterson, in writing about Isaiah's ministry, he made an interesting comment he said judgment because it is God's judgment is never the worst thing that can happen this is where we're turning the corner towards the good news okay judgment's not the worst thing that can happen even worse would be that God would just leave us to ourselves that's way worse and so there's hope in the expectation of judgment because it's not just punishment it's not condemnation it's correction it's God's way of setting things right again God tears down so that he can rebuild the nation is dying He's lamenting their dying. He's ripping out the vineyard, but he's going to replace it. He's, he's lamenting their death. The nation is dying, but he's a God of resurrection. And so here's the thing. There are times in our lives when God brings judgment for our sins, but it's always for a greater purpose. And in John 15, that passage again, Jesus uses the imagery of pruning. 
Here, here he says, I will not prune. Did you notice that? He says, I'm not going to prune. I'm just going to let it go. I'm not going to pay any attention to it. There, there Jesus says that God, God prunes us. He prunes away the stuff that isn't bearing fruit so that it might bear more fruit. And when you prune a bush, you take a bush that looks okay and you hack it to pieces. And when you're done, you're like, why did I just do that? Does anybody have this experience? I mean, it looks okay. It's not great. It's not healthy, but it's better than just a bunch of sticks coming up out of the ground. You prune it. It looks horrible. But wait a few months. And then it looks even better than before. And that's the imagery here. See, if you believe, and if you've put your faith in Jesus, then all of God's discipline, every judgment, even the last judgment, they're prunings. He's using them to make you better, more beautiful, more fruitful. And so if you look at the title that we've given to the series of sermons, Isaiah, and especially chapters 40 through 66, which will be our main focus, it's about comfort. But in order to teach you about true comfort, the comfort that God gives, God has to first disturb you out of whatever counterfeit comfort he might, you might be looking to. So there are two things that happen. These, I can't even, man, my eyes are so bad, I can't read the tagline on, that, uh, on the slide behind me. But do you see it? What does it say? Isaiah comforting the disturbed, but also what? Disturbing the comfortable. Because those are the two things that are happening. God has to first disturb you out of whatever counterfeit comfort you might be looking to if you're comfortable he'll disturb you so that when you're disturbed he can comfort you with true comfort the Heidelberg Catechism question number one says what is your only comfort in life and death do you know the answer the answer is that I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful savior Jesus Christ everything that God is doing is to lead you away from false comforts toward that true comfort. And it's a hard road. And the hardest part is that on the other side of whatever painful thing, on the other side of the pruning, on the other side of God digging up the dirt of your life and ripping out all that he has planted to replant, on the other side of all of that, to open your heart to whatever God intends to do next, to the future that he is building. And that's where I want to end lastly by seeing, we've seen the expected fruit and the rotten root, but don't miss the coming shoot. In Isaiah 27, the prophet picks this back up, this metaphor of the vineyard, but it's a very different imagery. It's now the worthless vineyard that has become a pleasant one. It's full of fruit to feed the whole world. Now, we have to be somewhat short here, but this, this is an image of restoration, of resurrection, of return from exile. God says, verse 4, he says, something's really changed. In chapter 5, he's coming against them in judgment and anger. In chapter 27, verse 4, he says, I have no wrath. In other words, his judgment is past. All of the anger that was against the vineyard has been turned to whatever thorns and briars might now dare to invade it. There's peace. Twice, he says, let them make peace with me, verse 5. And so it's something has dramatically changed in the way that God and the vineyard are interacting with one another. And it's that experience now of God's love and restoration and blessing and, and the peace that we can have with him that the people begin to flourish. They blossom. They become what he's meant for them to be all along. And life begins to shoot out of the stumps of the fallen trees that he has felled. This is beauty and the beast. When the magic begins to fall from the sky in the Disney movie. And the brambles are transformed into beautiful flowering vines. And the crumbling buildings are rebuilt. And the overgrown fountains begin to flow with water. This is what God is saying he's going to do. The people who he is sending into exile are going to come back to the land and he would restore them to himself. But here's the question. How does all of that happen? How is it that all of that, how is it that all of God's judgments against us as his people 
are just prunings. And it's because of this. In Isaiah chapter 11, we come across the same imagery. There, we're told that the line of David, the kings of Israel, had been reduced to a stump. The tree, the great tree of David's line had just been cut off, and it was just a stump in a field. But then something amazing happens. From that stump, a single shoot starts to, starts to push forward. And God says this single shoot would come forth from the stump of David bearing fruit. And Isaiah knew it, and we know it to be a future king. And Isaiah goes along, you begin to realize that all of God's hopes and plans for Israel were actually not something that would be accomplished by Israel, but by this single person. He's called the king in chapters 1 through 39. He's called the servant in chapters 40 through 55. He's called the anointed messenger in chapters 56 through 66, but we know him to be Jesus Christ. The God-man come down from heaven to undo the lofty pride of man. He did not live in fierce autonomy. It says in John that he came not on his own. He came only to do the Father's will. He did not exhibit cruel injustice. He confronted the powers and befriended sinners and the poor. He was the one who more than any other was disadvantaged for the sake of others. He was the true vine. He was also the son of David, the true king, the shoot. The shoot. You notice the imagery of the shoot here in chapter 7? But he, but he was the shoot, capital S, crowned with thorns and briars because he came to take upon himself the covenant curse of our sins. Jesus died upon the cross, bearing the ultimate judgment that Isaiah 5 only alludes to. God's wrath against sin was poured out upon him and not us. And it was extinguished so that all who believe can truly say, there is now no condemnation. And they can live knowing and even relying on his love. And listen, friends, those are the conditions in which the fruit that feeds the world can grow. The fruit of his spirit in us, love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth. But it takes humility. It takes humility. You have to be humbled out of your pride so that you can learn to receive all of life as a gift and live in gratitude. And the gospel of Jesus is power to humble you like that because it is grace. Salvation comes in Jesus alone. You can't be good enough. You can't do enough to save yourself. And fruitfulness only comes by God's power in you, not your own strength. And that's really good news. That's the good news of Christianity. Pride is denying the reality of God. But the reality of God in Jesus will deny your pride. Uh, a few years ago, some of us uh, went to Israel, and um, we're going to go again next year, Lord willing, depending upon what happens with all of this stuff. But uh, one of my favorite parts of the trip was when we came to Bethlehem uh, at the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, which, of course, commemorates the site of Jesus' birth. The only way to get into the church is to go through what's called the kneeling door or the door of humility. It's a door. It's about three and a half feet short, you know, three and a half feet. So unless you're a hobbit or something... Uh, you're, the only way to get into the church of the nativity is to crouch down, to bend down, to almost bend down on your knee and to walk through it that way. You have to humble yourself to get in. Now that's on purpose. Because the only way to come into Christ is to humble yourself. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Take stock this morning. Are you comfortable? Maybe you need to be disturbed. Oh, that God would do that. Are you disturbed? Have you been humbled? Are you reeling from what life has done to you recently? Well, then take comfort. 
Jesus is a friend of sinners. And he will lift you up. There's an old Augustus Toplady hymn entitled A Debtor to Mercy Alone. And here's what he says. A debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercy I sing, nor fear with thy righteousness on my person and offering to bring. The work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. His promise is yes and amen, and never was forfeited yet. Things future, nor things that are now, not all things below or above, can make him his purpose forego or sever my soul from his love. That's good news for us this morning, so pray with me, if you would. So, Father, thank you for the gospel promise of the shoot that would come out of the barrenness of our lives. There's so many times where it feels like we are just a stump. And yet, even in those moments, you're not done with us because you're a God who takes the weak and makes them strong, who takes those who've been humbled and exalts them. And so I don't know, wherever we are this morning, Father, there's some of us in the room that we come and we're just... um, We're just comfortable, and we would say we need something to kind of stoke us. Would you disturb us? Would you disturb us, maybe in the consideration of the way that we can live in fierce autonomy or cruel injustice, whatever it might be, where where we would have to be honest about the lack of return on investment for your grace in our life, and we would just fall to our knees and begin to humble ourselves before you and repent. But then there are many of us who are disturbed, we're harassed and helpless, Like sheep without a shepherd, as the scripture says, and what we need most is to be comforted. Would you come, Holy Spirit? You're the comforter. And in these moments that we have, even to sing this song, would you remind us that there is goodness and mercy that follow us all the days of our lives. They're running after, they're chasing us down. You're chasing us down, Father, not because you want to hurt us, but you want to hold, you want to grab a hold of us so that we can live in your grasp so that none can snatch us from your hands. So give us grace to stop running and to turn and to open ourselves up to being overtaken by your love and mercy. Maybe that would be our repentance this morning. Whatever it might be, would you come and meet with us now as we sing this song to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for singing that song, guys. My family fell in love with that song this summer. Uh, they sang it, uh, the choir at our kids' school sang it at the baccalaureate service, uh, graduation of our son. Now, can you imagine? That was a blubber fest, right? Because when you're graduating a kid, it's so true. But I love that even in the second verse, it says, look, even in the hard times, it's just as true in the hard times as it is in the, in the good times. And so here's the promise of this benediction. When I raise my hands over you, it is the promise that as you go, his goodness chases after you wherever you go. That's what these words mean. So live in light of that reality. Stop running from him. If you're here and you don't know him, stop running from him and turn and face him and let him overtake you with his love and mercy. Uh, but, but even if you've known him for a long time, stop running from him and allow his goodness and mercy to catch up to you and live in it. So receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. See, that is the condition for fruit which God wants in all of us. And so may we be fruitful for his glory. Amen. Go in his peace.